The main rule of operating inside of these is air management. You're going to be consuming more of it. You need more of it for escape time in case a collapse does happen. And we want to be mindful as we work in these conditions. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. From the Federal Resources Studio, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. I'll bet if you had to pick a least favorite kind of house fire, it would be one in a hoarder house. They're tough to navigate, have lots of fuel, and can hide some nasty surprises. If you haven't dealt with one yet, you will. Compulsive hoarding disorder is a psychological condition that affects up to 5% of adults, and the number is growing. My guest today wrote the book on fighting fires in hoarder houses. Ryan Pennington is a firefighter paramedic for the Charleston, West Virginia Fire Department. He's currently assigned to Station 8 and is part of the West Virginia Task Force 1 USAR team. With over 15 years of combined fire rescue and EMS experience, Ryan teaches firefighter safety around the country. He also hosts the popular Jump Sea Radio podcast, and runs a website called Chamber of Hoarders. More on those later. Ryan Pennington joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Thanks for having me on. Boy, I'm super stoked to be in here, and thanks for getting up so early over there on the, the other coast area. Hey, whatever it takes. How do you define a hoarder house as opposed to just a really messy one? Ooh, great question. So a hoarder house, or a.k.a. a heavy content, a condition, can actually be different levels. There's a couple different assessment scales used by the, the mental health professionals. But the first responder scale that I use is like a one through five. So someone with uh, an excessive amount of clutter can start at one and progress all the way to un- uninhabitable spaces, which is a level five. So people ask me sometimes, like, well, run. I ran a heavy content fire last night. I was like, okay, well, you're going to have to be a little bit more definitive with your assessment. Was it a level one? Was it a level two? And that dictates your, uh, dare I say, aggressiveness or offensiveness, so to speak. With that in mind, what was inside the worst hoarder house you've ever encountered at a fire scene? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that you say that, but some of the worst ones I have seen has just been excessive amounts of normal household clutter. I remember the worst one particularly that we ran, we got upstairs. So it progressed from like a level one to a level two. Then we got to the bedroom upstairs and we were into a level four and it was DVD cases. Holy moly. Have you ever seen a room full of DVD cases catches on fire? You don't want to. It was a spectacular fire. I mean, it was, it was carpet sucking hot because that amount of polystyrenes and plastics in such a small, confined space was just remarkable. So lots of toxic chemicals and toxic smoke. 
Oh, yeah. It, it took a while to decon from that one, but it, it was pretty remarkable because once the top layer of the clutter burns, especially with the plastics, it makes like a, a layer of crust, so to speak. So that was pretty remarkable that once the top layers of DVDs had melted and we applied water and we got an initial knockdown, when we start into the overhaul process, the stuff underneath the initial stack, it wasn't even burnt at all. Hmm. Have you ever found a victim inside of one of these houses? No, I've not successfully rescued one, uh, a victim from inside a heavy content myself personally. Now, the case studies that I've completed, absolutely. All the way from uh, San Diego, California, let's see, Philadelphia. I mean, it's been from the smallest of small to the biggest of big. Just because there's heavy content there, it does not mean that you're automatically ruling that patient as unsavable. The best case study that I was able to uh, accumulate or complete was in the Citizens Fire Company in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, which is the panhandle of West Virginia. So they're basically a suburb of D.C., it took them 31 minutes to find the victim. They didn't give up. They adjusted their tactics, and they found that the lady, although she was severely burned, she did survive the fire after 31 minutes inside the room of origin. Now, that's a surprise. And, and what happened is the clutter fell on top of her, created that crusty layer. She was by a window, so she had fresh air, and she survived. If the firefighters would not have been that determined to continually go, 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 hey, we've got an unaccounted for victim, they would have just let her die, but they didn't. After they removed her from the, from the window uh, removal process, four of their firefighters basically collapsed and went to the hospital from exhaustion. It was a remarkable case study. Given that hoarding is a mental disorder, how do you deal with the residents whose belongings are in danger of being destroyed in a fire? Oh, that is a tricky, tricky, tricky question. It's almost like, number one, you need to be understanding of the disorder. They don't choose to be compulsive hoarding, or they don't choose to suffer from compulsive hoarding disorder. This is a diagnosable mental condition. So we need to understand that they don't rationalize things like we do. So something that you and I would perceive to have no value could be very valuable to them. So we need to be understanding of their disorder and when we interact with them. Some of the best practices that I've found is by try not touching their belongings. Now, I know you're thinking, well, well Ryan, how in the world are we going to get inside these, these conditions without touching it? Well, you do, hey, man, sir or madam, I'm sorry I touched your, your belongings. I, I will put it back, but we need to get in here to assess you. And that's for like a non-fire situation. It may be required for you to remove the occupant from the scene, especially during the overhaul phase when, let's just face it, firefighters, we just take our coal shovels and start shoveling sometimes, especially stuff that we perceive to have no value. And that person may have an extreme uh, reaction to their uh, quote-unquote valuables being destroyed. What problems do these kind of houses present in terms of size up when you arrive on the scene? The main thing is, is, is firefighters need to understand the difference between a, a rural heavy content and a municipal heavy content. In the municipal districts, they've got building codes, and building codes pretty much state that you cannot compulsively collect stuff in the front yard. So if a, if a fire officer has become a lazy fire officer and doesn't complete the 360-degree size up, they're not going to find the cues or clues of heavy content. So what happens is, is it, it restricts your access to the building if there's clutter in the front yard, clutter in a side yard, and then you've got the privacy fence issues. So the fire officers have to be a little bit more patient, and it's going to take tactical patience 
as far as the jump seat firefighter who wants to get in there, get in there, get in there. It's like, oh, pump the brakes. Let's make a proper assessment of this situation. We want to find their access points. Where do they get in and out of the house from? A lot of times it's not the front door. A lot of times the front door will be reinforced and collected behind it. So it takes some tactical patience to assess it. Something we learned from our good buddy, Andy Starnes, is we take our thermal imaging cameras with us. So that way we can assess and we can see through the clutter. And what we're looking for in a thermal imaging as far as the tactical 360 is we're looking for the cold areas, the cold areas being the pathways. And they're going to show on your, the resolution of your thermal imaging camera a lot darker, a lot colder. And that way you find their pathways to get in the structure. And those pathways offer us the best uh, avenue, so to speak, to get in there if you decide to go in it. So you mentioned the fact that doors may be blocked or blockaded. How do you make entry into a house like this? Is the goal simply to find the door that the residents use, or is there a better way to do this that might be a little faster? A a lot of times you really need to be mindful of the neighbors. (laughs) I hate to say that the neighbors understand this disorder the best, but they do because they've been dealing with this condition for years and years and years, especially if they know that it's over there. I used to be able to say that the door was blocked or locked. That was not an entry point. Well, we proved that one wrong with a quick uh, case study out of Gwinnett County, Georgia, where the occupant actually locked the doors and then went around and crawled through a window. So if you find a padlocked or a blocked access point, That doesn't mean they don't never use it. It just means that they didn't use it the last time they went inside their their structure or their confines, so to speak. So we want to try to find the pathway of least resistance, whether that's a window, whether that's a door. And think about it. Most of these folks are not going to be physically able to climb over the stacks of belongings. So you want to find the pathways. The pathways are the keys to firefighter success in fighting the fire and making the rescue. Once you guys make entry, is there a problem with firefighter safety in terms of things falling or tripping hazards? Or where 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 is the problem there once you're inside? Both. <laughs> I always tell everybody that we, we always absolutely crawl. And the thing about the heavy content conditions is a lot of times the surfaces of the content you're crawling over is going to be hot. We need to be mindful of that, whether it's cooling it with the hose line or manipulating the contents as we go. We need to be mindful of pinch points. So imagine for a second if you were to stretch a hose line down an auditorium, down each aisleway. We want to leave those pathways in there, but we also want to be mindful if something gets knocked over, it can absolutely block your, your means of egress. So that way, if you're going in for a search, you need to go away from a traditional wall search. And if you're using the hose line, we want to make sure that, that we're mindful of our bins or our pinch points. So that way, if something does collapse behind you, then you need to be able to get out. The main rule of operating inside of these is air management. You're going to be consuming more of it. You need more of it for escape time in case a collapse does happen. And we want to be mindful as we work in these conditions. I'll be back with more right after this. When that call comes in and you rush to head out, The last thing you're thinking about is your safety. But your safety is all Federal Resources thinks about. At Federal Resources, we work to make sure that every responder is equipped, trained, and ready to come home safely. You look out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. Learn more at federalresources.com. 
How is the fire affected in terms of fuel? Is this a case where there is a lot more fuel for the fire? Getting to the seat of the fire in a, in a heavy content conditions may prove to be almost impossible. So we need to go back. It's so funny that when I teach my class, when I teach my class, I always have this slide up at the beginning of it. So we're going to be talking about the latest, greatest in fire research, fire dynamics study. And I put Chief Lehman up there, Chief Lloyd Lehman from the Parkersburg, West Virginia Fire Department from the 40s. It's actually, we go old school with it. So you can't hit the seat of the fire. So you're going to have to use a more indirect, indirect approach. And we may actually have to use this, this magical, awful term that firefighters hate and they're scared of it. And it's called steam <laughs> think about it is is we need to keep it as sealed as possible and think about the fire tetrahedron we've got heat fuel and oxygen what's the one thing that we that we can control hopefully the best in this situation and that's the air track management or flow path management because if you give a heavy content fire a lot of air it will burn it will burn hotter faster and your tactical speed will need to be increased because it's going to grow exponentially. So if we can control the air track while we're getting our hose lines in place, that's what leads to the most successful firefight, especially in the heavy content arena. What prompted you to start a website called Chamber of Hoarders? About four or five years ago, my, my department, we had a heavy content fire come in and we had a rescue. So it's like when I started this research, everybody's like, well, Ryan, if it's a, it's, if it's a hoarding house or heavy content, we just won't go in it. Well, <laughs> all of that changes when you hear the reports of confirmed victim trapped. And the Charleston Fire Department at the time's resources was 24 firefighters within the first five minutes. It took us 31 minutes to remove an occupant with four firefighter near misses. Two ran out of air. One fell through the floor into the basement. And the captain from the outside gave up his face piece. And we were unable to save the occupant. That started the wheels turning. It was like, so I reached out to a couple fire departments, reached out to a couple more fire departments. And all of a sudden I shared my information with Dr. Gasway. And he was like, oh my gosh, Ryan, if you don't take this ball and run with it, I'm going to, because this is going to absolutely explode because of the rating scale, because of the frequency in which we're seeing them. And he was the one that's kind of directed me to start my research 82 case studies later, it's taken me all the way from Anchorage, Alaska to uh, Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland, sharing the information because this is not an Appalachia problem. This is not an Arizona problem. This is a worldwide growing issue. And I think it probably hasn't been receiving the attention it deserves. People tend to believe it's something that they'll just deal with when they arrive on the scene. And, and usually I get the call. After the fire, <laughs> well, hey, Ryan, it happened in Bowers Beach, Delaware. It happened in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. It happened in Tennessee. They're like, well, all right, well, we almost killed somebody. What's the adjustments? And the thing about it is, is I guess I didn't really realize the adjustment factor when I first started researching. It, it took me for a little while to realize how much adjustment it takes, and it takes a lot. We want to use traditional tactics applied in a non-traditional fashion, so to speak. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Sure. So we're going to identify the, the path of least resistance, literally. We're going to approach it. We're going to leave it throttled down. We're not going to ventilate ever, oh. ever, 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 ever. Okay, not, well, not ever, ever. Well, but we're yeah. not going to ventilate until we've got some sort of suppression. We've got extra manpower on the way. We have an extra RIT team on approach. And it, it just takes something... 
the thing about it is, is your tactical pace, once you, once you identify and once you start introducing air is going to speed up because it's like having a confined space fire. So we need to make sure we've adjusted. So let's just say that we've identified the fires on the BC corner. Well, we're going to do an indirect attack through the window with the window in place. Well, Ryan, why would we leave the window in place? Well, number one, we're not going to be able to get to the seat of the fire, period. We're going to use the new UL and NIST information. We're going to bounce our stream off the ceiling, just like we always have. But if you don't open the window, the byproducts of incomplete stream placement is steam. It keeps the steam in the area, keeps the, the fire throttled down, and it gives our steam chance to saturate and penetrate the area. Does now, that make any sense? Now, that is a great idea. <laughs> well, I mean, Unfortunately, it, it was not mine. It was Chief Lehman from Parkersburg West. <laughs> well, I mean, it's using a byproduct that you're already going to have to help you fight the fire. That's right. And the thing about it is, is I always tell firefighters that our forefathers in the fire departments understood how to do this. In my generation, we had uh, great PPE advancements. We had great SCBA advancements. When I very first started, we didn't have to worry about such things as flax shovers, backdraft, because we had solidified wood and normal everyday class A combustibles. Well, what happened was, is the fuel loads have overran our PPE, and now we're seeing these things progress faster. We need to go old school a little bit more. We need to use what our forefathers taught us as far as indirect attack and managing the airflow, which they understood. Why? Because they had to have the air to breathe. It sounds like more of a challenge than maybe some people would like to admit. It takes that tactical patience. It took my department here in West Virginia a long time to start embracing the tactical 360 and using the class A foam that we do. It's just something that firefighters have got to learn. I don't know if it comes with wisdom. I don't know if it comes with experience. I don't know if it comes with education. But it's like, I always tell people, it's like, if you got a chest pains patient on your ambulance, would you just go grab them, throw them on the cot, and take them to the emergency department? And they're like, no, Ryan. It was like, I'm going to start an IV. I'm going to do a 12 lead and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, why do we go take an inch and three quarter and go through the front door all the time, every time, instead of diagnosing what we have? It's like, a, and I always tell that, that Captain Andy now, pretty soon to be Chief Andy Starnes, is his tactical thermal imaging is the 12 lead for the fire service. And we need to learn to assess what we're going into make a tactical decision from a plan and think about it is you got to do it in a, in a pretty time compressed amount of time. I mean, you only have just a couple minutes to get there, assess it, make your decision and go. So I love listening to uh, Jocko Willink and, and listen to his, his, his way of working through tactics, especially tactics under stress. And I think that's what the evolution of the fire service is, is the evolution and the education of today's firefighters and fire officers. All right, Ryan Pennington, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Man, thanks for thanks for having me on, and, and hopefully you're staying nice and cool out there in Arizona, and thanks for getting up early in the morning. And we put some more information about Ryan's book, his podcast, and his hoarder website on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash hoarder. Check it out. Now, here's your trivia question. The danger of backdraft increases dramatically as oxygen levels drop below what percentage? I'll have the answer right after this. If you like Code 3, you'll love the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more discussion with our guests on any topic. Sometimes it's serious. 
Sometimes it's not so serious, but it's only available to patrons of Code 3. Find out what you've been missing. Go to Code3Podcast.com slash support. Pledge just $10 a month to support Code 3, and you'll get immediate access to all the bull sessions in our library and future interviews as we post them. Become a patron today, support the show, and get access to the Code 3 Bull Sessions. Here's the trivia answer. The danger of backdraft increases dramatically as oxygen levels drop below 16%. And as a refresher, warning signs for backdraft include little or no visible flame, grayish-yellow smoke, swirling dense smoke, Smoke escaping under pressure, liquid black residue covering windows, doors and windows too hot to touch, muffled fire sounds, and the whistling sound of air being drawn in. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is made possible through the generous support of Federal Resources. Visit them at federalresources.com. This show is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.